But I spent a lot of hours essentially locked up in the Indonesian airport. And that will really quickly teach you to put a correct date on your calendar and make sure that you have the dates wrong. Because that truly is what it is. I had the date wrong. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Sarah Weaver, real estate investor from long distance and lifelong digital nomad. But before we get into all that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Uh, no crazy travels or anything this week, just some fun Halloween activities and for those who don't know, uh, which I do live in Austin, if you've never seen the movie Dazed and Confused, there's actually one of my favorite barbecue spots was in that movie. It was like one of the scenes that's talking about like the Emporium. But anyways, that place had a really cool setup as well where it was like 1970s beer prices. So beers were a dollar. People were dressing up like 70s style. And then for the actual kind of like Halloween party, I dusted off last year's, which was a uh, Joe Exotic, which I always have fun doing. But I guess I'll go ahead and retire that after doing it two years in a row. How about yourself, Cody? <laughs> I did see that outfit, and it doesn't get old, Justin. You are really rocking that Joe Exotic costume. <laughs> I was Cosmo, and my fiance Lauren was Wanda from the Fairly Odd Parents. We went to a Halloween party on Saturday night, and then on Sunday, actual Halloween, we were at her dad's house, kind of passing out candy to the neighborhood kids, which was a bunch of fun. Something that I did want to mention that's just a cool, weird, unique story, and it's real estate related. One of our duplexes, we had a tenant move out. If you've been listening to the show for a while, we had kind of a nightmarish tenant that we had to almost evict, but fortunately they left on their own terms. Got these new tenants in, vetted them you know, very carefully. They seemed like awesome people. They had great credit scores. They had good references. And the boyfriend or fiance, I'm not sure exactly, is a contractor. They asked me, they're like, hey, can we redo the floors upstairs? You know, the rugs are kind of beat. And they were. The rugs weren't in the best condition. And we just didn't want to, A, spend the time or B, spend the money right now because they weren't so bad that they needed to be replaced. But we went out on a limb. We're like, sure, you can redo the floors. Just make sure you take before pictures. Make sure you take pictures of all the material prices. If it's done well, like we'll reimburse you for the prices. Send me pictures yesterday. I am not kidding you. It probably would have cost four or $5,000 for how much work they did and how good the floors look. This is just like a kind of a weird, crazy example of, you know, going out on a limb, trusting your gut, going through the vetting process and doing something that people probably wouldn't recommend. You know, no one's going to say, yeah, let your tenant redo all of your upstairs floors. But this guy knocked it out of the park. And so, you know, I'm still stoked about how they came out. It literally adds like 15, 20 grand of just like, internal curb appeal to the property and yeah just a a weird win for me this week but not complaining about it yeah you know i actually had something similar to that once but i was on the other end of it we were renting a place in colorado springs had a crummy kind of landlord who just didn't really take care of the place like listen like if this place if we could just have paint on the inside and carpet because the carpet inside was like unbelievably terrible you know like what do we have to do and he's like well if you'll like do the legwork and whatever like i'll reimburse you and so we did this kind of same thing. It wasn't really the best deal for me. Like, it seems crazy that I did this labor or not really late. Well, some of it was labor, but anyways, did some of the legwork for free. But, you know, it got me a nicer place to live and it cost me anything. So it was it was OK. Well, I can definitely sympathize from that landlord's point of view. And it's kind of a win win for everyone. I know, obviously, you are doing some of the legwork, but if it's just an hour here, an hour there, nights and weekends, and you're chipping away at stuff and you're getting a discount or even free rent 
or completely reimbursed for materials for getting a free place to stay. I just think that's an awesome deal. And so again, I'm just, I'm stoked about how these floors came out. But Justin, I think that's enough about our personal updates. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Alrighty, so today on The Five Show, we have on Sarah Weaver, who is a long distance real estate investor and really long distance if we're going to be talking about distances here. She's investing from Europe, Southeast Asia. She's just traveling all over the world and managing these properties in the States in a pocket of communities that she's found to be viable rental property areas. And it's just amazing the system she's built out, how she's putting offers in from multiple thousands of miles away. And she kind of gets into all that in this episode and shows you how you can build a replicable process and also plenty of tips on property management. Yeah, Sarah's story is definitely great. And me and Cody got to meet Sarah in person at FinCon and just has such a great personality. The stories that she has about all the amazing adventures she's done around the world while not even having a crazy salary are truly incredible. If after you listen to the episode, you want to follow along with Sarah or maybe share it with a friend, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Sarah. That's thefyshow.com slash S-A-R-A-H. Take it away, Sarah. So what would have been my sophomore year of university, so it's like second year, I actually ended up taking it off. I called my parents from Europe and said, hey, guys, so sorry. I lied. I only bought a one-way and kind of had to figure out how to fund that lifestyle. And while I was traveling Europe, New Zealand, and Australia, I met people in so many different walks of life. But one thing became really apparent. These people all had a lot of time off or they quit their jobs and went traveling. And so I knew from an early age that I wanted to figure out how to have passive income or a job with a ton of PTO, which isn't really possible in America. And so passive income kind of became apparent really early on. And you said Psych just bought the one-way ticket. So that sounds like it was a little bit premeditated. So you knew that you were going to do this when you went to Europe. And how did you get the confidence to do something like that? Yeah, it's funny. So I bought a one-way because I found a great deal. Um, Like travel hacking and finding cheap flights has definitely been a part of it. I mean, this was back in 2009, so a long time ago. And so I bought the one way thinking like, oh, I'll, I'll buy the, the ticket back eventually. Well, eventually just like never came. And it just started like getting pushed off further and further. And so it wasn't incredibly premeditated. But as like my study abroad trip started to come to an end, I was like, oh, I'll just keep traveling. 
and we'll see what happens from there. And so speaking from personal experience, and I think Justin was in the same boat, you're not earning a ton of money while you're in college. So what were you doing or what were some of your income streams while you were over there to, you know, fund that lifestyle and then to make the decision that, hey, I'm going to keep doing this. Like the bank isn't dry yet. I'm going to, you know, continue these travels on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want to mislead anyone. I did not have any passive income at the time. (laughs) It was just like a light bulb moment went off then that I was like, okay, I got to figure this out. It actually is what motivated me. I did take a semester off from KU. I went to the University of Kansas, but it is what motivated me to go back. I thought, oh, maybe I do need a college degree to figure out what I'm going to do next. But actually what I was using for money was um, I babysat a lot. I had two jobs that freshman year. And then thankfully I was on a lot of scholarship. And so it just kind of rolled over and all of a sudden I realized I can afford $11 a night in a hostel. I just can't afford that and eating out every night. So there was a lot of ramen, a a lot of convenience store beers and cheap (laughs) nights. When you took that time off, were there any other implications? Like, did you lose scholarships? I know, you know, some of the ones that I had when I was in college, they were very strict on, you know, certain rules. You had to have certain GPAs. You could, you had to be enrolled full time, et cetera. Yeah, no, I'm really lucky. I was on certain types of scholarships that were definitely year by year. So it wasn't like I was on a full ride for all four years. So taking that time off didn't jeopardize me. However, it's actually something I wouldn't recommend to students. So if there's any high school students listening, taking the gap year like in between is really hard because it really screws up your timeline. Like I joined a sorority and all of my friends, they all became even closer that fall semester, sophomore year. And then I came back and I was like that girl that was abroad. And so, and then also to like care about frat parties and designer purses is really hard after you just spent eight months backpacking New Zealand and Australia by yourself. So it definitely made me a bit of an outsider. And so I actually recommend it either right after high school or better yet, do it before you get a real job. And so speaking of real jobs, I mean, how long did this travel thing persist before you're like, all right, Sarah, like I got to buckle down. I got to start making some money. Yeah. So I did go back to university. So I just took that semester off. I went back, graduated on time. So in three and a half years, two degrees, and then figured out that I should find a job. And so I applied for a bunch of things. I ended up interning for a company in Germany. And so actually kind of got my dream job or so I thought in Germany right after graduation, showed up and it wasn't quite as legitimate as I had thought. (laughs) There was no visa. There was no sponsorship. It was just like, oh, we just expect you to overstay your visa and essentially be illegal. And so I kind of had to scrap that plan and figure out what I needed to do next. And so it's funny, if you looked at my resume, it's a bit of a joke. Like I did an internship here, an internship there. And so that's why I always tell people like, your story doesn't have to be incredibly linear. You don't have to take a job at the best corporation and get the best internship. And then it's going to turn into this. My resume kind of looks like a joke. And frankly, I've had a really kick-ass 10 years like of my not only professional life, but also my personal life. So after that initial internship that didn't turn out to be as legitimate as you had hoped, was there a point where you kind of started settling into a, a normal career or did you always kind of just do things a little bit at a time and then travel and then do a little bit of work and travel? Yeah. So it wasn't until 2015 that I realized, okay, I don't want to piece together different internships and take three months off and go traveling and kind of deplete my savings. So I wrote in my journal that I want to be location independent. And that was my way of saying digital nomad. That's what I call it now. And thankfully, I didn't just close my journal and hope for another six months. I actually closed my journal and applied 
for 83 jobs. I had a spreadsheet because there was no way I could keep them all in order. And I'll never forget, I got one a call back uh, while I was driving and they're like, oh, why are you interested in this position? And I, I had no idea what the job was or who it was. I just started talking and I must have done a really good job because I had a job offer within eight days of writing in my journal. And then I stayed with that company for almost five years. I was 100% remote. I worked from about 18 different countries while working for them and learned a lot about real estate. So, I mean, just thinking through a lot of people are like, you know, what, I can't travel to X, Y, or Z country because, you know, my job doesn't allow that. Even with the full digital nomad thing, I still hear this excuse because of different time zones. And so I'd love to hear from your perspective, Sarah, you know, working from that many different countries, how you're able to manage your workload from a time zone perspective and, you know, meet the expectations of your bosses and meetings and all the stuff that goes into a role like that. Yeah. And I get asked a question that's really similar. When I am in these countries, there's backpackers around and they're like, whoa, how are you so disciplined? And it's like necessity discipline sometimes comes from necessity. So I didn't want to lose my job. So I showed up to work. And so was it always great to work? Like when I was in Europe, I worked usually 3.30 to midnight. And so it sucked. Like after 10 p.m., like people are starting to get rowdy. Friends are like, hey, when are you going to meet us? We're out for a drink. But also the great thing about being in a place like Spain or Portugal is that like, frankly, the the kitchen still serves at 1030 or 11. And so you just kind of change your lifestyle and change your clock to suit the job. And then I learned, wow, this is so cool. I can like go out for a drink at 11 p.m. and I can be a good a good worker and just turn around and go back to bed and then have a full day. Or if I want to be rowdy, I don't have to start work till 3.30 in the afternoon tomorrow. <laughs> and so it really created like a really cool lifestyle. South America is so much easier because it's similar time zones. And then Asia was frankly a kind of off limits because of the time zone, because I was doing so many work calls. So it wasn't until my role changed or I changed companies that I was able to kind of totally scrap time zones and go to Asia or Southeast Asia. But it's definitely doable. And is it always super comfortable? No, but it was better to do that and be able to live in Portugal for three months than not do it at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And you threw a little statement in there where it's like, and I learned a ton about real estate. Like, how is that happening while you're living in a completely different country? Are you learning about real estate back in America or are you actually learning about real estate internationally? Yeah, right now I just invest in the U.S. And so I, I call it Destination Capitals of America. So I'm in Omaha, Kansas City and Des Moines. So obviously being a little facetious about those locations, um, <laughs> but I actually am running some short-term rentals even in Omaha, Nebraska. And so that's one point that I like to make is that it's not always the locations that you think of that work for different strategies and in investing. So even when I was traveling, I was focused on real estate in the U.S., frankly, because you can leverage money through the banks. And I was at a point in my real estate portfolio where I was focused on growth. So can you dive into a little bit more of that initial real estate role? Like what exactly were you doing? Yeah, absolutely. So for five years, I worked for a company where we placed administrative staff on teams, brokerages, and individual agents. And so what's really cool, I don't even know I realized at the time, but these real estate agents that were functioning at a really high level were opening up their books, showing me the issues of their team organization and their business and their structure. And I was there to find a solution either in the capacity of an assistant or sometimes a high level person like director of sales or director of marketing. 
And that role was so fun because I was networking with the best of the best. And so not only were these real estate agents really great at selling real estate, a lot of them owned real estate themselves. And that's how actually how I first kind of got interested in owning real estate myself. And we'd already talked a little bit about time zones, but now that I understand a little bit more about, okay, you're talking with actual different realtors. I know when I haven't done a, a ton of real estate, but you know, you can tell when working with realtors that they work kind of crazy hours because it's all about, you know, deals go fast. Uh, people could be looking on the weekends, different times of the day. So did that kind of roll over into to your role as well, where it wasn't as concrete as like, okay, I know you said earlier, you're working from like 3.30 to 11 p.m., but it seems like realtors don't necessarily play by those hours. Oh, yeah. With real estate and now real estate investing, there's kind of no rules. Sometimes I'm getting texts at 8 p.m. Eastern or 3 a.m. Um, I have one of my clients that he'll always be emailing me at like 2 or 3 a.m. And what he's actually doing is he's feeding his baby. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm analyzing deals. I have like the baby in one hand and I'm analyzing deals with the other. And so, yeah, real estate kind of has no boundaries. So College Sarah is this girl who discovers passive income. And this is the key to traveling. At what point, so you talk, kind of talked about this more traditional career. It sounds like a job where, you know, you're getting paid a salary or W-2. At what point did you kind of get that first taste of passive income where you didn't have to trade your time for money? I house hacked in 2017. I took the entire upstairs of that house down to the studs and turned it from a three, one and a half to a four, two. Filled the rooms with roommates or tenants using the rent by the room strategy. And then I pieced out for the summer. And so I realized, oh, wow, well, first, I'm the best roommate or landlord because I'm never there, but I pay for the utilities. <laughs> um, I think the best roommate's the one that pays on time and is never there. And so I realized that I could have all of my living expenses covered just with one house. And so then I was like, wait, why don't I just do that again? And so then I house hacked again with a duplex. At that time, I was even cash flowing even more because of the extra unit. And so now I'm actually house hacking a fourplex. And so it quickly became very addicting. And a lot of people, you know, with real estate specifically, they get they get really nervous about it if they're not around the investment. But it sounds like, you know, you've got the place and you're traveling not just around the country, but around the world. Is there anything maybe you could say that could alleviate some of those fears for people? Yeah, you have to have a backup plan for your backup plan. I think Morgan House, I think is his last name. He wrote The Psychology of Money. He says, you have to plan on the plan, not going as planned. And <laughs> that's exactly right. So I have not only a great plumber, but I have three great plumbers. I have an electrician. I have a handyman. I have, frankly, even friends or family friends that could swing by the house, worst case scenario. And you just have to have all of these things in place. And then you have to be extra communicative with your tenants. And so the great thing about with the way the things are right now is, I mean, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp, it doesn't matter where you are. Now I even have it set up so that my cell phone even works everywhere I go. And so you just have to be available and be communicative. And I have replaced a roof. I've replaced a dishwasher. And I've now even done a full-on burr all out of state and out of country. Wow. So as someone who invests, you know, kind of far away, and by that, I mean an hour, <laughs> you're someone who's literally on a different continent managing these properties. I'm just thinking from, you know, really nitty gritty, tactically speaking, do you leave like a lockbox at the house with a key in it where all your contractors can access? Do you have someone who can take pictures of the property once a tenant moves out and then show it to a new prospective tenant? Just really wondering how that works, like showing the tenant a new property or an emergency where you need to be there. 
So I have keypads or like keyless entry on almost all my properties. The ones that I don't are definitely going to get it in the next year. And then I have all of my contractors know that I'm abroad. And so like my mower, he takes a picture once he's done and then sends me a Venmo request. And so it's all set up so that I don't have to be there. Um, is it always great? No. Like my one of my general contractors installed the dishwasher. He didn't do it correctly. He lied about it. So then I had to hire another person to go in and actually fix it. And would that happen if I could actually walk the property? Frankly, probably. Because why would I have walked the property and ran the dishwasher? I probably (laughs) would have forgot that too. And so things are going to happen. But frankly, paying another plumber, I think it was like a $200 repair, that's cheaper than me flying in and spending my time looking at the property. Yeah. And I mean, we're kind of talking about like how, you know, this can work. This is like, you know, it's something not to be as scared of as maybe a lot of people are. But what is something people really should watch out for? Something that maybe they're not thinking about when they're trying to do something like this from as far away as you are? Yeah, I think it's trust but verify. And so having photos, having video, um, having a really good relationship with the tenant. The tenant needs to tell you when something's wrong because those delayed maintenance requests really start to add up. And then if if something smells fishy or tastes fishy, then it's probably fishy. So like I kind of knew that that general contractor like wasn't completely honest with me, but there wasn't much I could do about it is what I had thought. But what I should have done is I should have fired him and found someone else. So I can see a plumber, an electrician, you know, and it sounds like your mower is even taking pictures. And, you know, sometimes very rarely you might get screwed and you might have to rehire a different technician to fix whatever that previous technician did wrong. But you've bought properties sight unseen. That seems like the scariest thing ever. That is a whole nother rung of trust up the ladder. <laughs> you know, who are you trusting to go and do these things? Or are you just like looking on the MLS, see a solid property and you just throw the offer in? I am working with investor-friendly real estate agents. I in, do entrust a lot of my portfolio with them. And I'm investing or working with agents who also invest themselves. And so I, like I said, I'm trusting, but verifying. So I did buy my fourplex that I'm house hacking now from 8,000 miles away. Um, I closed on it before I saw it. I actually even had my unit furnished before I ever saw the property. And I, yeah, I trusted, but I verified. So I took my agent's information and then I checked citydata.com. I truly a crime maps. I walked the neighborhood on Google Earth. I talked to other investors in that market who are actively investing in Omaha. I asked their opinion on the property. I had a contractor, an inspector, and a property manager walk the property while I was in my inspection period. And I'm getting videos of all of this. And you just said one little thing that I, I don't know that I've heard anybody mention. It was having it furnished while you weren't there. Was that some kind of like service or is it just like an individual that you know? How did you do that? Oh, yeah. I, I call it my team, a.k.a. I hired my mom to drive three hours <laughs> and do it for me. Um, it actually worked out that I had a unit that had some of my, my previous house hack had furniture in it that needed to get moved because I was renting that whole unit out unfurnished. And so it was just the timing of it. So I know, I mean, since then, you have just blown up with the number of units that you've acquired. Don't want to quite get that far, but you know, you have that one house hack, you move on to the next house hack. What does your cash flow look like at that point? Like, obviously it was good because you kept doing it, but you know, how much were you taking in net month over month? Yeah, that's what's really fun. So the gross cash flow from my single family and my duplex, so the two house hacks that I had, one's in the Kansas side, the other's in the Missouri side, but they're both in Kansas City 
was $1,200. And the reason that that number is so significant is because I moved to South America in January of 2019. And that entire year, I was living off of $1,000 a month. I was saving because I was still working full time. And so I was saving almost 100% of my salary because obviously gross and net cash flow are a little bit different. But I was, yeah, basically saving my entire salary, which frankly wasn't very much. I was never making six figures in that job, but I was saving all of it. And so that's what allowed me to then scale so quickly. So then I bought the fourplex. And what's interesting about the fourplex is I have two tenants that are long-term. And then I'm playing around with short-term and medium-term strategy. So short-term being Airbnb or VRBO, and then medium-term is the traveling nurses or corporate housing. Um, I just rented to a couple that their house was being renovated, and so they needed somewhere to live because they both work from home. And so they moved into my place. It's funny because they told me they'd be there a month, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I bet. And I made sure that I blocked off for like an extra month after them because we're in real estate. We know that renovations never take what they're supposed to. And sure enough, they needed to extend. What about financing as you're going through all these? How did you approach it? I, I know a lot of investors um, really shy away from being over leveraged. But frankly, I think real estate is amazing because I can't go to the bank and say, hey, will you lend me $300,000, I'm going to invest in the stock market. <laughs> but I can go to the bank and say, hey, will you give me $300,000? I'm going to invest in this four-unit apartment complex. And so all three of those were owner-occupied conventional loans doing three or three and a half percent down. And so I know a big part of your now role and previous role was like coaching these real estate investors. And I know you coached agents as well. And you're doing some of the scariest stuff in the game. Like to me, buying a property sight unseen is like one of the scariest things you can do in real estate. What are some of the biggest mistakes that a lot of these new investors, new agents are doing that they could easily fix? I think that investors I'm seeing now with everyone's assuming that the market is so crazy and so there's no good deals. And so they're getting impatient and they're buying bad deals. So sometimes I'm, I mean, I just had an investor last week that I was coaching. She sent me, hey, I'm under contract. I'm so excited. I said, great, let's run through the numbers. We hopped on a second coaching call so that I could analyze the deal with her. And I was like, am I getting this wrong? Like, this isn't cash flowing. And she's like, no, no, it should. And I ran it again and again. I'm like, no, this doesn't cash flow. Like, I don't think you should buy this deal. <laughs> and so I think don't get impatient is like, and it, I mean, I'm a very impatient person in my personal life. I wrote 18 offers to get one to close. And so 2020 was like a definitely a test of my patience. Um, there were lots of tears <laughs> And so I think that that's my piece of advice to investors is you just have to wait for a good deal and you might have to turn over stones that you're not used to overturning. And I know there's no like crystal ball for these kind of things, but just curious what your personal take is as you've been in a lot of different markets and you've been in it for a few years where we're at this kind of like, you know, especially over the last year, you've seen prices go up so much. What are your thoughts on like where we go from here? Like, are those good deals coming back? Like, I understand the sentiment of people not feeling like there are good deals because everything has gotten so expensive. Yeah, absolutely. I think that off-market deals are still out there. They're always going to be out there. And they're still great deals. So just because the house in this neighborhood sold for $450, it doesn't mean that the neighbor two blocks down knows that. So you could be sending them letters or cold calling them or knocking on their door saying, hey, I'd love to pay $300 for your house. 
and they're like, oh my gosh, like I own this house completely outright. You're going to offer me 300,000? Like, honey, like I think that we should do this. And so that's where you're going to find deals is that people that don't know or they're in a bad situation. So they need to sell for whatever reason. And the house needs a lot of work. So I mostly invest in what what I consider value-add properties. So these houses need a lot, a lot of work. And so in order for that couple to get their house up to the comps of the, the neighboring house that sold for $450, they would need to renovate about $100,000. Well, frankly, they don't have $100,000 or they don't know how to fund that renovation. And so there's still good deals out there. You just have to be willing to do things that people aren't. So with that being said, that you buy fixer-uppers and the market is saturated and there's less deals. You had quite the explosive summer in terms of your unit growth. You 5X'd the number of units from three to 15. Is that correct? Yeah. How in the world did you manage that? Yeah, it was it was with intention. Like I know it doesn't sound like I, I don't want to be one of those podcast guests that's like, I just did it and I made it happen. <laughs> but I cannot stress enough that mindset is so key. Because as I mentioned, 2020 was incredibly frustrating, not because of COVID. I was in New Zealand. They essentially eradicated COVID. So you guys, I was living life. I was going to festivals. I was online dating. I was doing all the fun things personally. But investing wise, it was so frustrating. I was getting bid out on everything that I was writing. And it's because I was focused on too many markets. I was writing offers with financing and I was looking at deals on the MLS. And so I really changed my strategy and I focused on two markets. I had two investor savvy agents. They knew exactly what I wanted. And I told them, if you send me a deal, I will write an offer. And then I stuck with my word. And so I essentially became their ideal client. So when they would send me a deal, I'd write an offer. And they cared so deeply about me getting under contract that together we were able to do that. And so I house hacked a fourplex and then I did my first out of state burr on two duplexes. So that's another four units. And then the house or the fourplex that I'm house hacking, I chatted up the neighbor and I'm not joking. This is really cheesy, but I think it's important that before I saw him mowing the lawn and I thought, hey, I think that's the landlord because I know it's not any of the tenants. And I'm kid you not. I looked in the mirror and I said, you're going to buy the building next door. And I went next door, I charmed the socks off of him, and seven days later, I was under contract. Wow. <laughs> and and so you went from three to 15. It makes me want to go back to that financing question again, because it was a little simpler sounding when you just have like the three and you're living in them. When you go to add 12 more in a year, how are you doing the financing? So I did lots of things I've never done before. I My burr is I used hard money. I had never used hard money before. And the down payment that the hard money lender required was $80,000. Well, you guys, I just had bought a fourplex. I hope to buy more properties. So I wasn't willing to sink my $80,000, which I had in the bank. I wasn't willing to sink that into the burr. So I actually found a private lender to lend me the $80,000. And so the down payment came from a private lender, which I can circle back how I found him. And then the neighboring fourplex uh, where I charmed the landlord, I had no idea how I was going to finance that. Like I left that conversation. And by the way, guys, he said to me, he goes, yeah, you're an investor. Do you happen to know someone that would want to buy this property? And I was like, stay cool, stay cool. I was like, yeah, maybe. And I went and (laughs) saw my unit. 
And I'm sure he was still, I don't know that if he was, if he was still outside or was running the mower, but I went back into my unit and I just like screamed. I was so excited. And then I was like, how on earth do I do this? Like I'm already at that point, I was under contract on my bur- on my burr. I knew that I couldn't get qualified again. I obviously can't house hack two properties at once. And so I'm doing my first partnership. So I had someone in my life that's been watching what I've been doing. She asked a lot of questions. And so I, I, I thought, wait a minute, I think that she might be really interested in doing this with me. And so the loan is under her name and we figured out a partnership. That's been really fun because like I said, on my unit, I'm doing a short term and a medium term. So the building next door, we now have three units that are furnished and we're playing around with traveling nurses and Airbnb. Something I read on, I think it was on Instagram as I was doing my research for you, Sarah, it was that one of your top values is connection. It was a post that you posted somewhat recently. I just wanted to dig into that a bit more because it seems like, you know, as we kind of go through this interview, a lot of the success has stemmed from you just getting yourself out there, being personable, making the right connections. And I mean, even, you know, meeting me and Justin at FinCon, I feel like I've known you for years and we literally hung out for like, you know, four days in person. You just have this like really vivacious energy to you and you're really good at connecting with people, you know, is that an intentional thing or is that just the way you are? I think it's both. I think that it is how I am, but also my lifestyle, I think requires it because of how much I've traveled over the last decade. Like I dive deep real quick because I might only travel with that person for three weeks. And so I kind of skip over the small talk or the politeness and dig deep right away because we just get so much further and we have so many more laughs if we just tell stories that might not be super appropriate to tell like within five minutes of meeting each (laughs) other. But it really helps people to put their guard down. And then one, one thing that I've had to learn as someone who's extroverted and I talk a lot is I really had to be intentional about listening. It's really easy when you go to shake someone's hand, you're already like doing an internal dialogue of like, okay, I'm going to say, hey, I'm Justin, I do this. But no, you have to be quiet even internally and you have to listen to the other person. Otherwise, you're never going to remember people's names or where they're from or what they do. And it's really important to be a good listener. And I certainly have not been, you know, moving around the way you have, not even close. But, you know, I move around every like two or three years and, and I've seen how hard that is to make like real deep friendships that continue. I'm curious kind of how like you handle that because, you, again, you are a very personable person. You, you jump right in. But there's just, to me, there's something it's like it's hard when you're not even in the same state, country, you name it. If you're moving around as much as you have, like is that something that you feel like you're missing out on is, is being in one place a little longer and getting those deeper, longer-term connections with people? I have friends all over the world, like li- literally, but it doesn't keep you company on a Tuesday evening. And so at some point you do have to be intentional about moving to places or spending time in places where you have community and friends. And so this month I'm spending time in Colorado because I have a lot of friends here and I'm kind of tired of starting over every single month. And so Cody, you just went to Greece and this is a country I've never been to. And I really wanna go. But I keep pushing it off because instead I get invited to go to Mexico City where I already have friends or I get invited because one of my best friends moved to Lisbon. And so I'm going to choose to travel there because I want to spend time with people that know me and I don't have to start over and have small talk from day one. And so my traveling has definitely changed a lot as I've gotten older. And as someone who does travel that much, kind of on the opposite side of the coin here, you know, 
not being so stationary in one state or even one country. I'm just curious about some of the rules. I know like there's the Shenzhen rule, like you can't be there for 90 days. I'm just curious, like how you go about navigating that. Like, do you have a, an Excel spreadsheet where you're like, okay, I can only stay in this country for this number of days, then I'm going to go here. Or is it just kind of a wing it, find the cheapest one-way flight like you did in college and call it a day? A little bit of both. And that has gotten me in trouble. I haven't been arrested, but I have overstayed my visa in two countries. I am still allowed to go to those countries, but I spent a lot of hours essentially locked up in the Indonesian airport. And that will really quickly teach you to put a correct date on your calendar and make sure that you have the dates wrong. Because that truly is what it is. I had the date wrong, you guys. I thought that I came in on this day, but it turns out it was the day prior because of time zones. And yeah, I got in big trouble and it cost me money. And so I, it's pretty, it's not very um, systematic. There's no spreadsheet, but I do put on my calendar what day I entered what country. The other reason I did that is for the entirety of 2020, I was out of the country and that allowed me to experience some type of foreign tax exemption. And so I actually just did the October 15th tax deadline and which was, I don't know if anyone else is doing that, but definitely apply for the extension. Don't do your taxes in April. Hold that money as long as you can, especially if you owe. But for 2020, because I was gone, I think it's 330 days or more outside of the U.S., then you actually are completely exempt from taxes up to a certain percentage. Certainly a very powerful little tool. And I mean, you mentioned kind of like one little bad thing about traveling, which was, you know, your your experience Indonesian airport. But I remember from our short time together at FinCon, like you just had all these amazing stories of different travel experiences. For those out there who maybe haven't got to do a ton of international travel or maybe in their head, they're like, ah, you know, I don't really need that. Like, what are some stories maybe you could share where you're sitting there and you're like, I cannot believe I'm getting to do this right now. Like, this is crazy. I guess in theme with November, I'll tell you guys about a Thanksgiving that I had abroad. So I I had an American boyfriend. He is blonde hair, blue eyed. And we were in a tiny town in Colombia and we weren't meant to be there. We were supposed to be at a cooler town with a really hip hostel. We knew there would be a bunch of foreigners. They had put on their Instagram that they were going to do a big American Thanksgiving. And we were so excited to go there. But when we went to the bus station, they were like, the bus isn't running today. And at the time, this was in 2016, my Spanish was pretty shit. And I was like, but why? Like what? And they're like, Busta isn't running. I'm like, yes, but why? And finally, a guy behind us is like, hey, there's a big mudslide. Like truly, you're not getting there. Like there's no train plane. You're literally, there's no way you can get there. It's one road in, one road out. So defeated, we went to the grocery store and we're trying to piece together like somewhat a resemblance of a Thanksgiving dinner. And this guy comes up to us and he's like, are you Americans? And we're like, yeah, is it that obvious? (laughs) And and he said, great. He's like, I'd like to invite you over for dinner. And so it turns out he's Colombian, but he and his wife raised their kids in the U.S. All of his children are adult, live in, in Los Angeles. And so he hosts a bunch of expats for Thanksgiving dinner. We had checked out of our Airbnb and it was booked. So he also gave us a place to stay. And we had dinner at his house. And what was so fun about the dinner is there was a guy from Germany and a girl from Croatia and a a guy from like all over the world that was at the dinner table. And at one point, the German guy pulls out his guitar and he plays a song in the language from all of our different countries. And I'm just sitting there like how and he plays John Mayer for for an English song. 
and he's playing John Mayer. And I'm just sitting there looking around the table like, how is this my life? <laughs> like, how how blessed am I that my parents are all at home? You know, there's FOMO, like, oh, I didn't get to see my cute cousins and all these things. But how lucky am I that I have this experience that you just would never have, especially if I had planned it. Like, if the there hadn't been a mudslide, I would have been at a hostel drinking with a bunch of 20-year-olds. But instead, I was having this, like, incredibly, frankly, like, super romantic evening, very idyllic, with people from all over the world that were, like, sharing not only food together, but also sharing their home. I love that. And Justin and I were actually just talking pretty recently about just, like, I think for me, you know, being in circumstances where things change, where people with, you know, different experiences, different worldviews all around you, like, it's super humbling. I think I'm a way more well-rounded person from, you know, visiting third world countries, from visiting countries with water you can't drink or <laughs> barely shower in. I don't know if you, you want to weigh in on that at all, but the how it's kind of just shaped your worldview and like, you know, whether it's a certain experience from a certain country or whether it's a, you know, a certain person that you might have met. Yeah. And and it it's funny. I, I once got asked actually on a podcast, like, what advice would I give my younger self, like my 16-year-old self? And a lot of people would give their younger self like, oh, you should read more. You should be more disciplined. You should learn a new language. You should invest earlier. Frankly, I would love to go back and just tell myself to like chill out. Like it's all going to work out. Like I was wound really tight. I was very type A. I didn't just join a club. I'd be the president of that club. And I think that traveling has really mellowed me out. Like when things go wrong, it's just like, oh, that sucks. Like recently someone did a hit and run. I wasn't in the car. My car was parked. And I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. It still ran, but I was like, gosh, that really sucks. But there's nothing I can do about it. Like I could let it ruin my evening and I could cry about it and be angry, but it wasn't going to pay for it. <laughs> it wasn't going to find the person that did it. And so I think it's made me just a lot more chill as well. I once dated someone from Venezuela, and I was just thinking about this. I was reading Grant Cardone's 10x rule, and he talks about if your power goes out, what you should do, and you should have a generator or candles so that you're prepared. And I agree with that, but it also reminded me of a story. I mean, Venezuela, they were out of power for almost eight days, and there was no way for us to contact their family because the electricity was out, the power was out. People's medicine that needed to be refrigerated couldn't be refrigerated. And just seeing my friend handle that, like how he was handling that situation, we were in Brazil at the time, was just incredibly eye-opening because he was just so confident. I mean, with certainty, he was like, it's all going to work out. Like, it's going to be okay. And I really try to take that into everything that I do. Like, it, it's all going to work out. I'm not perfect at it. Like, don't think that I'm some like Zen person that's like, oh, like $1,400 plumbing issue on my fourplex no big deal. Like I still get really upset, <laughs> but I just put it into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, learn how to uh, eventually let it roll off is, is definitely very key for somebody like you who's been to so many places. I always love to ask kind of like, what are, what's like a really underrated place that you've been to? Like, what is a place that is not the country people are planning on going on vacation, you know, next summer, but you, you know, like, nah, this is, this is the place you should check out. Oh, that is I, that is a, my least favorite question is my favorite place to go to. This might be my new favorite question is what is the most underrated? So uh, immediately I think of Lake Bled, Slovenia. Slovenia is incredible. It is just breathtakingly beautiful. Um, it's really easy to travel to. Everyone speaks English. It's a tiny country. So they had to learn a common language uh, to do to have a great economy, which they do. 
and it's just clean and safe and the nature is absolutely stunning. So highly recommend it. I actually went this time of year. So even in like October, November, it's absolutely beautiful. And then another place would be Antigua, Guatemala. It is one of the best places I've worked from. I stayed at a hostel. I think it was like $17 a night and that was expensive. Like that was luxury and it had like a breakfast included and it was outstanding. And so I cannot rave enough about Guatemala. It's also a really great place to go if you want to learn Spanish. You can have one-on-one tutoring for a really reasonable price and their Spanish is really slow. So it's really good for people like me that needed it to be slow. And I learned really quickly. I'll never forget one of the other students after class was like, your Spanish must be really good. And I said, why? Why? You've never heard me speak Spanish. And he said, because you and your teacher laugh a lot. He's like, I don't understand a word my teacher is saying. And you guys are over there cackling. And so, yeah, my Spanish got really good from doing one-on-one classes in Guatemala. Yeah, I actually, so the, I do like a mission trip in Mexico and there's, there's two people who come from Guatemala who, who live in Guatemala as medical missionaries to kind of help as translators. They're both American, but they've been living in Guatemala for years. And he got to talking to me about the climate and how it's like, it's almost like Colorado, except it never gets below 70. You know, it's like beautiful mountains and it's dry. So you're not like, there's not like all the bugs and the humidity, but yet it never gets cold. It's like, it's like 70 something year round. And he also mentioned to me some of these places where you could do the one-on-one tutoring and actually like live in tutoring. And it was very reasonable per month where you live with a family, it includes your meals and, and everything. So that's a great option for folks out there. Yeah, it's beautiful. A lot of people opt for Costa Rica, which I've actually never been to or haven't been to yet, I should say. But Guatemala is just, I mean, breathtakingly beautiful. And I know you just mentioned Slovenia and Guatemala And I'm guessing these are good for digital nomads since you're working full time there. But I'm just curious, like I remember working on hostile Wi-Fi and sometimes it's just abysmal, like nothing would load. You can't get anything done. Do you have a workaround for that? Are you going to like a restaurant or a Starbucks or equivalent? Um, How are you managing if it's bad Wi-Fi? I think you can't talk about being a digital nomad and not talk about bad internet. (laughs) And so you have to have a job or situations where they're understanding because I would be in tears, especially I was in Colombia for three months and I would be like in the Airbnb, like crying because the internet dropped and it was like, okay, you had to figure out a backup plan. At the time I was so frugal and on a budget that I didn't do things like buy a SIM card in the local that had a hotspot. And things have gotten so much better. I mean, I first started doing this in 2015. Now it's so much easier to find great cell service that then you can hotspot from your phone. And then sometimes I paid the money. Like if I knew I had a really important call or a podcast interview where I was going to be on video, you pay the money for the co-working space. And even then, sometimes the internet didn't work. But yeah, you just have to, you have to learn to be really patient. So you and Cody just kind of talked about, you know, like the internet and how it doesn't always work out exactly maybe how you planned. And that kind of made me think about, you know, you look at these things like on Instagram, it's like what you thought this location was going to be like, what you thought this lifestyle was going to be like, or maybe what you thought you had to have in your own personal life to be able to do it versus reality. And I know that, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's not like you were on a six figure salary. Can you just talk a little bit about how maybe this is more attainable than some people are thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I was working for an American company like during this time that we're talking about. I was working for a company 40 hours a week, making about $50,000 a year. And because I was keeping my costs so low, that was more than enough money to live a life abroad and invest in real estate, especially being able to leverage money using mortgages. 
But I think that that's something that I always want to show people is that like, you don't have to wait. It's probably actually, in my opinion, it's a bad idea to wait. Cause like eventually I'm hoping to meet someone and settle down and maybe start a family. But and those things are only going to make it harder and harder to live this lifestyle. And so if there's anyone out there that's thinking like, gosh, I really want to do it. Frankly, you have to do it and you have to do it now because you don't need to have a lot of money. There's ways around it. And sometimes I'll never forget. I was staying at a hostel in Panama City and I was working full time. I had a really big presentation two days after that, actually in Toronto. So I was being flown from Panama City to Toronto and I was staying in a hostel. There was it was a dorm room. I was in a dorm bed. And that night I ate at a Michelin star restaurant. And it's it's one of the cheapest Michelin stars in the world. I think I, I spent maybe like 170 on the meal, which was appalling. I thought that was a ton of money at the time. But my hostel was only like $12 a night. And so sometimes you give and take. Like I don't always post photos of like, here's the bed that I slept in or here's like the cockroach in my Brazil apartment. And so not that I'm trying to like be dishonest, but I don't think people want to see all the ugly sides of traveling or even investing. I'm like talking about my $1,400 plumbing mistake. I think that you have to sometimes use your brain when you're looking at people's Instagrams and it's not always the highlight reel that's real life. Well, if people want to follow your highlight reel, Sarah, and get in contact, (laughs) they want to kind of follow along your journey, all the cool travels, all the real estate stuff that you're doing. I know you're not slowing down anytime soon. Where is the best place for them to do that? Yeah, if they're on Instagram, I'm Sarah D. Weaver on Instagram. And if you guys want to see more photos of all the bad stuff, just comment and I'll start (laughs) posting it. Drive the demand out there, folks. Well, Sarah, thank you again for coming on the show. This was awesome. It was awesome meeting you in person, too. If you ever get a chance for those listening to meet Sarah, take that chance. She's She's a good time. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.